Well, good morning once again. It's a privilege to be worshiping the Lord with you all together this morning. Uh, Pastor John and his family are out of town on a vacation, and so we can pray for them that it's a restful and sweet time. Uh, come back refreshed and, and ready to uh, jump back into the, the everyday stuff of life. Um, but it's, it's such a privilege to be with you all opening God's Word together this morning. And we're opening to the book of John, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 12. And in this passage, we'll be looking at what's called Jesus's triumphal entry. Uh, John's account is kind of unique, too, in some ways. He points out things that the other gospel writers don't mention. And so uh, hopefully, as we consider this great event in Jesus's life, we'll be seeing some new things, uh, seeing just the way John uh, depicts this in John chapter 12, starting in verse 9. I'll read from verse 9 to 26, and this is the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread word. Many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. And while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. This is God's word. Now let's pray together as we come to it. Father, we praise you for speaking to us, for sending your Son to enter space and time and human flesh, uh, to go before us and to make a way. Now, Lord, we pray that you would open our ears and our eyes this morning, that we would see Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. So, Lord, be at work among us by the power of your Holy Spirit. May the words of this preacher's mouth be faithful and true to you. Our good God and Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Some of you may know that my son Titus's delivery, when he was born, was a difficult one. I was a first-time dad, and like most first-time dads, when it came time for him to be born, I was pretty nervous. Uh, so many unknowns, so much waiting. Uh, but when it was time, uh, my wife Julia needed an emergency C-section, and when Titus was born, he wasn't breathing. I was terrified, one, because I had never witnessed a birth before. Is this normal? <laughs> and two, I was totally unprepared for what I was about to experience. When I saw that Titus arrived and he was limp and, and blue in color, uh, he was rushed over to the incubator table where he essentially was resuscitated back to life by the nurses there. And afterward, he spent several days in the ICU to recover. But if you know Titus, you look at him now, you would never know uh, and never guess how close he was to death, even in his first moments of life outside the womb. I learned a valuable lesson that night. There's only a thin line that separates life from death. And that thin line is a very present reality to each of us every day. The question is, are we ready to face it? Our text in John's Gospel speaks right into the matters of life and death. Um, so for some context of what's going on here, we're told that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Uh, so this Passover was a great feast in Israel, right? This was a great time, a holy day. Uh, large crowds were flooding into Jerusalem to prepare for the celebration. And at the same time, this passage also marks the turning point where Jesus makes a definite turn toward the cross. As we'll see, Jesus faced his coming death with strength and confidence because he knew his life didn't consist in worldly gain, but in a heavenly kingdom that he would establish by his death and resurrection. But before we get too far down that road, let me give us a roadmap of how we're going to engage with the text together this morning. Uh, we'll look at this text under three major headings, death, glory, and life. And the order is important, because the reason the triumphal entry was such a moment, momentous occasion in Jesus' life uh, was because each of these realities was coming to a head right at this point. What Jesus was showing his disciples during this time, he's also revealing to us today. And so I want us to understand that King Jesus leads the way through death into life so that we might follow him through humility into glory. I'm going to say that again. King Jesus leads the way through death into life so that we might follow him through humility into glory. So our first heading, death. John's account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is surrounded by the reality of death. So let's set the stage. There's the chief priests, the Pharisees, all the religious leaders of the day in Jerusalem uh, who are planning in earnest to kill Jesus, especially after he performed his most amazing miracle, raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. There were huge crowds in Jerusalem all getting ready for the Passover and many of them had heard about Jesus. They're all maybe wondering, you know, was Jesus going to show up? I mean, 
people know that he's a wanted man. He, he, there's, a, there's, a, there's an order that's out for his arrest. Well, lo and behold, Jesus comes to Bethany, just two miles outside of Jerusalem, to meet with Martha and Mary and Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. Eventually, word got out to the chief priests that Jesus was in town. And if you look at verse 10, they also decided that not only should they kill Jesus, but, you know, Lazarus is a bit of a nuisance as well. I think we need to take him out as well. But what were they thinking? This is the man that Jesus raised from the dead. Now they're going to kill him and hope he stays dead this time? But people do irrational things, right, when they're driven by fear. They thought, man, this Jesus is jeopardizing our good graces with the Roman rulers. Surely it's better that he die than the whole nation perish. The ironic thing is that that was Jesus' plan all along, that he would die. And so indeed, death was waiting on all sides. But let's not dismiss these men too quickly. How often are we like them? driven by fear. How are you threatened by the claims of Jesus, the King? You see, he calls for our complete devotion and obedience. He calls us away from worldly things that we so often look to for security, our money, our social status, civil and religious leaders, even fleshly comforts. He calls us to die to ourselves and our selfish desires, forsaking anything that would take his rightful place in our hearts. It's not an easy pill to swallow, but as we'll see, it's the only pill that we can take that brings true life. Now look with me at verse 23. After Jesus enters Jerusalem, he recognizes that the hour has come. Now, what's interesting about this phrase is that up until this point in John's gospel, it was always his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. But now, Jesus knows that it's time. His death is coming. He will be handed over to the religious leaders, and he'll be crucified. But he knows that that's the very purpose for which he came, And that's why he gives this illustration of the seed, right, in verse 24. It first must fall into the earth and die. It has to be buried. Only then can it bring forth the fruit of life. And you've seen this before, right? Remember when you took a seed and planted it in that little styrofoam cup? What happened? Did the the plant spring up right away? No, you had to wait. You had to water it. You had to give it sunshine. You'd go and check it every day. Maybe you even gave up hope. You thought it was dead. But eventually, it took days, maybe a week, maybe longer, for the buried seed to send out roots and eventually sprout. But what is Jesus getting at here? He's saying that like a seed needs to be buried in order to bring life, it's necessary that he be buried, that he face the brutal reality of death so that something beautiful might come from it. 
And so that's just what he did. Not only suffering the agony of his physical death on the cross, but, but also the spiritual death of being cut off from God, his Father. What about you? How have you experienced the effects of death? Have you lost a family member? A friend? A loved one? Jesus understands the pain of death. When he came face to face with the death of his dear friend Lazarus, he was deeply moved in his spirit, the Bible says, and greatly troubled. He wept. Physical death is a horrible curse on this broken world, friends. But it's also not the only kind of death that you can experience. Maybe you're experiencing the realities of death right now in the emptiness of a life of sin and running away from God. Maybe you're here and you're feeling the futility of searching for life in, in the world full of things that are fading and dying. Friends, death is all around. But where can we find peace and security? Where can we find true hope? Where can we find what our hearts are so desperately yearning for? Only the Lord and His glory. Which leads us to our second heading. Glory. Glory. You see, Jesus knew that His hour had come, but the way that He says it is surprising. If you look again at verse 23, it says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, in this, being glorified, he's actually referring to his death. But who glories in their death? This is odd. <laughs> Later in the same chapter, Jesus also talks about how he will be lifted up from the earth. But even here, he's not talking about his resurrection. He's talking about being lifted up upon the cross. What kind of glory is this? But this is how we begin to understand the very upside-down nature of God's kingdom. It's not what we would expect. In fact, God is radically redefining what is most important in life. Let's come back to thinking about what's, what's going on on this day of Jesus' triumphal entry. See, right, many people were gathered to welcome Jesus. Uh, several of them had heard about what he did for Lazarus. They were excited. I mean, who knows exactly what they were thinking about, but, but maybe they recognized there was something special about Jesus. Maybe they could do something amazing for them. Maybe Jesus could do something for them. But then he comes riding in on a little donkey. I mean, so much for pomp and circumstance. I mean, this is the king? Where's the war horse? Where's the fanfare? I mean, sure, people are shouting, Hosanna, save us, blessed is he, king of Israel. But what kind of king was this? Was Jesus the king they were expecting? Is he the king you're expecting? Think about who was in the crowd. There was surely Jesus' disciples from Nazareth, that 
backwater town that no one really cared for. There were people who witnessed Jesus perform the miracle of raising Lazarus. Large crowds were coming to welcome Jesus, but, but notice who wasn't there. Religious leaders, Roman officials, really no one of great social or political influence, people who could give their endorsement to King Jesus. Jesus' group uh, were the lowly, people without any great power or qualifications in the world. They were often the people that everyone hated. Even in verse 20, we read about how there's Greeks who are coming to seek Jesus. The Greeks or the Gentiles were really seen as the least desirable in that culture. They were despised, lowly, but they wanted to be part of Jesus' entourage. This wasn't a very glorious crowd. <laughs> and even still, the leaders were frustrated, right? They're saying there in verse 19, see, we're gaining nothing. The whole world has gone after him. Perhaps they were jealous of Jesus' popularity and how many people followed him. Maybe they were threatened by the authority of King Jesus, which called into question the significance of their own glory and their own little kingdoms that they were trying to build for themselves. But not all the leaders felt this way about Jesus. We actually read later in this same chapter that many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. It goes on to explain why. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Many people believed in Jesus. Many were following him. The crowd there had high expectations of what Jesus would do for them. But how many of them were actually setting their sights a little too low? Did they understand that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world? Did they realize that he was doing something greater for them than merely saving them from their circumstances? Do you? You see, King Jesus' glory was in his dying. And that is not the glory we would expect for a king, let alone the king of heaven. But his people were the lowly. His glory was in dying. His fame was in serving others. His triumph was in humility. So it begs the question, what kind of glory is worth seeking? Because Jesus redefines what glory is by showing us that true glory is found in humble service and self-sacrifice. But have you fallen prey to the glory that comes from man over the glory that comes from God? How have we set our sights too low pursuing our own selfish agendas instead of God's everlasting kingdom. Friends, if I'm honest, I too often insist on my own way. I seek fullness and pleasure in the things of this world and 
And you know what? I never really find it. But sometimes I'm convinced that the best thing for me is just the temporary enjoyment of getting my way, you know, watching what I want to watch on TV, going where I want to go on vacation, getting what I want out of work and play. Don't you know? I'm the king around here. Where's my glory? <laughs> was Jesus missing out on all this? I mean, was he missing something here? No. See, our Lord was seeking a greater glory because he found his true fullness and joy in life by dying to himself and serving the needs of others. He received glory that comes from serving the will of his Father in heaven because Jesus said it, the greatest in his kingdom is the slave of all. Do you believe this? It's the great paradox of Jesus' upside-down kingdom. <laughs> the king laid his life down on the cross, taking the death sentence that we deserve for all the ways that we've exchanged God's glory for the fading glory of the earth. Jesus, the Son of God, King of the universe, gave himself up for us. This was true glory, glory that would never fade. And so now, through the death of Jesus, God freely gives us his glory, the glory of everlasting life. Our third and final heading, Jesus' glory was in his death but ultimately so that he would bring life because in Jesus, we receive God's glory. It's a gift. He counts us worthy of his love. He brings spiritual life into our death and he teaches us how to live as citizens of his upside-down kingdom. You see, the good news is that something beautiful did come from Jesus' death. His sacrifice bore the fruit of salvation for us. He was buried, sealed in the tomb, but on the third day, he rose from the grave. And like the seed that is buried, Jesus led the way to life. And so now we get to experience true life in him. Friends, we have forgiveness of all of our sin, perfect acceptance with God. And none of this is a result of what we do. It is all a free gift that comes from a the hands of a loving Father and what Jesus has done for us. And I need to remember this just as much as anyone else because I often fail to live as a citizen, a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, a kingdom that is so much different than the one that I often try to create for myself. His is a kingdom, though, that will endure forever. And so he's teaching me, he's teaching us again and again that life cannot be found in the pursuit of earthly things, but only in humble service to God, the God of heaven, because that's where true life is. Look with me at verse 25. Jesus says, to love your life, is to lose it. Wait, what? 
<laughs> Did I read that right? <laughs> Friends, we can't take our earthly treasures with us. Death is a very present reality for all of us, remember? So why seek for the treasures of the world that will fade away, that will die, when you could have the everlasting treasure of Christ, where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal? And so in light of that, Jesus tells us that we should hate our life in this world. That is, to count our worldly pursuits as nothing compared to the riches of knowing Jesus, which is eternal life. To hate our life, as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians, is to count all our supposed qualifications as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. This is true life. This is peace. This is security. Just as late missionary Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. One more time, look back with me at verse 16. I'm encouraged by this verse. Because you read here that the disciples didn't understand. <laughs> they didn't know what was going on. They, they didn't get it. That's encouraging to me. They were wondering, you know, why is the king riding in on a donkey? It was only after they saw his glory, the glory of the resurrected Jesus, that they began to understand what he was about. See, the bigger picture started to come together for them. That life in Jesus' kingdom was something very different. It was found in dying to self and serving others. But do you feel like his disciples? Are you beginning to understand what Jesus was doing? If you're here and you're investigating Christianity and this doesn't all make sense yet, don't worry. And God is working on all of us here. He's going to help us to see the bigger picture little by little. And it's a work that he's going to continue until the day that we see him face to face. But consider this, friends. What would your life look like if the reality of Jesus' upside-down kingdom consistently governed all your thoughts and actions? How would you speak to your spouse? How would you interact with your kids? What about your relationship with your neighbors, co-workers, friends, those who don't yet trust in Christ? Remember, Jesus doesn't leave us alone in this. The fruit of his resurrection life is the blessing of the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us and empower us to truly live as citizens of an upside-down kingdom, as people who know that we are forgiven by God, strengthened by his grace to find true life in a heavenly reality that will one day be all that we know. And so to conclude, King Jesus leads us through death into life so that we might follow him through humility into glory.
And friends, he's calling you today to follow him, to trust in him through his death into life, to understand that his death was actually our death to the world and the old way of sin and selfishness, to know that his resurrection life is our life as we trust in him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has gone before us. He's prepared the way and received the glory of the Father so that we might follow in his steps. So let's press in to his love and mercy. Let's trust his promise of grace and forgiveness. Let's lean on his power to carry us through to make us live as citizens of his upside-down kingdom as we follow him into true and everlasting life and glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, you are so good to us, and you've shown us something so different, so unique, so countercultural, and, um, and we need you. We need you if we're going to understand, if we're going to live in light of this reality. We do need your strength. And we ask, O Lord, that you would help us to believe that you have made the way for us once and for all by dying and rising again, ascending into heaven, and even now interceding and praying for us. O Lord, teach us to follow you in humility and trust. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.